Welcome to Stutz. I'm Madeline Lazar. Stutz explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of Stutz Tarko. Stutz also gives my daddy the chance to check in with good, hardworking people and take a deep dive into what they do for money. Thanks for listening to my daddy's podcast. These are some of my daddy's favorite clips from the first half of season five from Stutz. You're going to hear from four different people that my daddy talked to. The first person is a guy called Justin Jackson. He's a bootstrapper, and I learned what that means. That means he started his own business all by himself. And in these clips, he talked about surfing, working with his partner John, and finding ways to balance his life and work. Justin was one of my daddy's favorite guests. Listen in and you'll see why. And I'll be back in a little while to set up the next clip. See you soon. Yeah, I mean, it seems that you and John sort of, you aim towards Zen, but you clearly embrace anxiety. And you do that in a really transparent and admirable way. In your work, you need to know when to explore and when to make a move. Mm-hmm. Your work has much to do with patience. Now, for someone who's not a surfer, mm-hmm. you deploy a lot of surfing metaphors. Yeah. <laughs> I'm hoping you might kindly discuss with me how you feel your work is like surfing, which I think is a metaphor for your relationship with patience. Mm-hmm. Talk to me all about that. Yeah, I mean, I would have preferred to use a metaphor I was more familiar with. Like, (laughs) if I could have used snowboarding, I would have. Uh, But the thing that's unique about surfing is surfing is mostly about being in the water, paddling, learning fundamentals, learning to read the waves, learning to read the weather, and definitely observing the size and shape of waves. And I think opportunity is a lot like that. Opportunity is about being in the water. You know, you, you have to be in the water to see the waves and even to have a chance of paddling out and catching a wave. You can't just get be at home playing Xbox and then get an alert on your phone that there's a wave coming. You're too late by that point, right? You have to be in the water. And so for me, being in the water is exploring areas of interest you know, like I was in podcasting since 2012. And for a long time, it was not a good industry to start a business in. It was mostly DIYers and hobbyists. Most of them were kind of rolling their own solutions. It was still too small. But I was in the water. I was participating. I was having discussions on forums. I was making relationships. I was connecting with other people. I was producing my own podcast. And over the years, that being in the water helped because I was able to recognize this coming wave uh, when Serial was launched and then the media kind of picked up on it. And now you have uh, op-ed in the New York Times every week about podcasting. (laughs) Um, That kind of cresting wave as it's happening and recognizing it enabled me uh, and John to swim out and and catch 
the wave. But we wouldn't have been able to do that if we hadn't been spending time in the water. The, the idea is you have to be exploring. Like, you can't just stay still. Most of the people I know who have good businesses and good jobs, good careers, often they find those things while they were doing something else, right? They're, they're in motion doing something else, and all of a sudden, this wave, this opportunity comes out, and they're in the water at the right time, the right place. They can swim out, and hopefully they have the fundamentals down where they're good paddlers, and they can swim out and catch the wave. I think uh, exploring areas of interest, I think meeting people in different circles, all of those, those exploration activities you do are like kind of just being in the water, waiting for a wave. And, you know, surfers try out multiple surf spots, right? It's like Monday, let's go over here. Tuesday, let's go over here. Wednesday, let's go over here. And I think that that idea just applies to life and the way opportunities happen. The surfer knows that the first spot they show up at, the waves might not be good there that day. You might have to go to another spot. But it's being in the water. It's the consistency of being in the water, checking things out, going to different spots, meeting different people. It, it increases the chances that you'll be able to catch a wave when it does happen. Have you read Will Finnegan's book, Barbarian Days? No. Are you aware of this? No. I'm loath to make a book recommendation on my own podcast, but it is this extended metaphor, a poetic metaphor, a lot of strong verbs mm -hmm. about surfing. I wouldn't be alone in recommending it. I, I just learned the other day that it won the Pulitzer Prize. When, when you're next on a beach wondering why it is that you haven't learned to surf despite all of these surfing metaphors, <laughs> bring, bring Barbarian Days with you. Listen, it's already come up a few times, and I don't think we should go too much further into this conversation without diving into what seems to me to be this splendid partnership you have with John. Mm -hmm. Now, I am uh, deeply interested in working partnerships, Lennon McCartney, Bert and Ernie, Bacon and Eggs, <laughs> and in the Canadian space, what do we got? We got uh, Tegan and Sarah, Japan Droids. <laughs> yeah. Japan Droids are Canadian, right? I, I, um, I, you got waf waffles and syrup. Yes. Right? Yeah. So, like, I'm really interested in these partnerships. I have a hundred questions okay. about your partnership with John, but it seems fitting to me to start right here. <laughs> Yes. Would you be so kind as to unpack this analogy and to explain how working with John gives you the power <laughs> of Voltron? Uh, sure. So in Voltron, multiple characters come together to form a giant super robot or super character, right? They all have their individual strengths, and they form up to 
create something bigger and stronger than the individual parts. And yeah, teaming up with John felt like that. It felt like, you know, I'd spent a lot of my uh, creative endeavors doing solo work, trying to make things happen on my own. And I tried a few partnerships here and there. And I remember partnering up with John and just feeling like, wow, like this is one of the few times in my life where this partnership feels like an exponentially better together than we are apart. It's like our individual traits, our individual skills, even like our personalities, it's like we come together and it's the, the sum is better than the parts. And the, the other weird thing was feeling like I, I have these new superpowers. Like now I'm Voltron and I have all of this, these new abilities that I didn't have before, but it's, it's, I'm still a part of it. Our partnership has been an absolute uh, gift. Like, and we both came together in kind of a, a vulnerable point of our life just personally and, um, you know, dealing with some depression and that's how we connected initially was just, we'd met at, uh, XOXO festival in Portland and we just talked through professional stuff, but then talk about personal life stuff. And out of that, we, er we were able to develop a trust. And then when the opportunity came up to do transistor, I still had to convince him. <laughs> <laughs> the the PR version of this is like, I sa said, hey, John, let's work together. And he's like, yeah. But he's very thoughtful. He took uh, a couple weeks to really think about it and then uh, said, yeah, let's do it. And ever since we've signed our partnership documents, we've been kind of committed to this idea that we're stronger together than apart. And um, the even the things that drive me crazy about him, like... <laughs> He has some personality traits that are completely opposite me um, and vice versa as well. Uh, I think we've learned to appreciate those and what they bring to our work. Like, I'm much more likely to say, hey, let's just do it. Let's go after this new idea. Let's pursue this new thing. And John is much more thoughtful, methodical, slow, just like, no, let's just slow it down. Let's think about it. Let's... Uh, critique it at a high level. Yeah, I think that tension has been really helpful for our work. And it makes me f wish that I'd found a partnership like this earlier in my career, because uh, I just think it's been so helpful. You've described yourself as the Walt Disney to John's Roy Disney. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sure he was flattered by that. We all <laughs> love Roy Disney. Like everyone's talking about Roy. Um, <laughs> I'm sure he doesn't mind at all. He just seems like a super cool guy. But I want to push into this partnership a little bit more because, as mm -hmm. I said, I do have this profound interest in partnerships you said that you know his skill set and perhaps some of his personality characteristics feel like it gives you and the the company like these superpowers mm -hmm. what are his greatest strengths what are his greatest assets and what are yours can you draw me the uh, john justin venn diagram sure. and talk about how these traits complement one another 
Yeah. I mean, very generally, he is the technical person. He's the builder. So he's an unbelievable product person. I, I would describe us both as product people, but he's on the technical side. He can take an, a shaped idea and go away and he can build the back end of it. And then he can also design the front end, uh, all of the user interface. And I've dabbled in both of those things in my career. And it was just clear as soon as we started working with each other, it was like, this is John's category. Yeah. He is so good at this. Yeah, this the um, smartest guy I know describes John as one of the smartest guys he knows. So, um, <laughs> yeah, he's that. he's unbelievably good, uh, and it's very rare actually to have. Sometimes people call that a full stack developer, somebody who has design chops and programming skills. They are very rare, uh, especially people that can execute on at his level. So that's his side, and even though there's some overlap in the middle when it comes to product design decisions and shaping product ideas. But then over on my side, I'm way more on the marketing side. Uh, So understanding customers, understanding what customers want, understanding what motivates them, understanding how we can reach them, understanding how we can communicate our value to them, and connecting with them in customer support, connecting with them at industry events, connecting with them on Twitter. That's, that's my, my game. And I, I mean, you can kind of see this if you ever listen to it. <laughs> John is just like, he speaks slower than I do. He's, he's he often has to fight to get anything in <laughs> when we're podcasting. I've tried to like slow myself down so he can speak more. Uh, but I just love talking. I love performing. You know, when we're at a conference this is this to me is the most hilarious example (laughs) you know we're at xoxo in portland and it's john mike our friend and myself and we're in one of those circles that emerges at a at a conference you know and i'm kind of holding court i'm entertaining the group i'm directing conversation i'm just in my element i i could have done it for hours and I look over at John and Mike, and they are exhausted. <laughs> and they're kind of like, they're like, hey, man, it's getting late. Maybe we should grab an Uber and head back to the Airbnb. And I'm like, well, okay. I mean, I guess it is getting late. It's like 11 o'clock or whatever. Let's, let's go back to the Airbnb. So we get back to the Airbnb. And I'm thinking we're going back and we're going to go to sleep. But then we get back, and John and Mike, who are who are much more introverted. They make some tea and then they want to talk. They want to, let's ah. let's 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 connect here. Let's uh, you know, let's talk a little bit. That immediately exhausts me. <laughs> so the, the, you know, there's in terms of where we draw our energy, it's just different. And um, huh. And this is again another advantage of the partnership is John is the kind of person that says, hey, let's connect. Let's jump on a call. Let's, you know, let's talk these things through. And I need those things just as much as the next person, but I don't always recognize the need for those things unprompted. So he prompts those. And then, you know, on the other side, I'm much more likely to start a live stream and answer questions all day or jump in a clubhouse room or Twitter spaces or you know, read a blog post or whatever, 
that's kind of my jam. And uh, I think you need both sides. Again, this is the advantage of Voltron, is that these two things can come together. You know, our mutual friend, Scott Robin, when I was in perhaps my darkest hour, surely my darkest hour as a grown person, he gifted me this book by Alan Watts. Alan Watts was perhaps the foremost scholar of uh, Zen in the Western world. And um, the book was called The Wisdom of Insecurity. I think the title more or less says it all. Mm. But you said the word vulnerability, and it reminded me that in my effort to teach history to young people in the throes of a pandemic, I had quoted you, in fact, to my students as saying that vulnerability beats professionalism in this space. Hmm. You and John walk through your hopes and your dreams, your fears and your anxieties around your business. Indeed, you and John, you you podcasted your whole bootstrapping process. Mm -hmm. Uh, You even go double meta, devoting an episode to transparency in startup. Can you talk a bit about the role of vulnerability and transparency in your work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, early on, it was helpful in two fronts. One, it allowed us to just be honest with ourselves and have this ongoing journal of our experience. And it also had a benefit early on of marketing, because when people are being authentic and sharing the things that often don't get shared including in our case, our revenue numbers, you know, those are things people don't get to see. And so it had the benefit of people talking about us, of following our journey, of rooting for us. And again, that also causes its own word of mouth, right? Like, have you heard of these guys, what they're doing? Here's what they're doing. And But beyond that, it's just like nice not having to hide anything. Hiding things takes energy, And when you have a community of people who are following your journey and are engaging with you in that way, you get the wisdom of the crowd, you know, you can, you can put something out into the world and say, Hey, we're struggling with this. We need help. And the, the community can often, they want to help. They're hungry to help. (laughs) They're eager to, to be able to contribute in some way. And, and to me, that's really like part of the power of the internet is that regular people can connect with one another and, you know, you can be starting a company or starting something new and you can get help from other people uh, without having to pay for it. And I mean, sometimes you pay for it too. That's fine too. But the, the idea that there's this ability to kind of share your story and then in return, get people's help when you need it is, is really big. Um, part of me is almost angry. Yeah. P- people told me that uh, normal, healthy human beings, you know, their, their life and their relationships and their, their inner self is just like this. You know, you're, you're not allowed to have a breakdown. 
I think a lot about even uh, the way, because I'm born in 1980, that the way the media treated uh, Britney Spears, I know she's actually a topic right now, but she, she had her breakdown. And I remember judging her at the time and like, oh, look at that. That is just pitiful. You know, what a, right. what, what a uh, embarrassment. And now I recognize like, that's me, <laughs> except I just wasn't in the spotlight. Like I am that person. Yeah. I, I have breakdowns. I am trying to hold it together. Th- these are all real experiences. Yet why are we pretending life is something that it's not? Yeah, I think it just makes everything easier. It makes it easier in my partnership. It makes it easier when we, we are, as a company, when we're addressing the public and new customers. It makes it easier for me as a somewhat public person to be able to uh, every once in a while just be like my true vulnerable self. Like I've really benefited from people who were vulnerable in public I think that one of the reasons I was able to get out of depression, find therapy, understand what was going on inside of me after years of ignoring it, it's just so helpful to have people who are willing to to be their authentic selves as much as they can in their writing, in their podcasting. It's It's just refreshing, especially because as human beings, we often need to know that someone else is doing that thing. Like, I'm not going to go to therapy if I'm the only one on the planet who goes to therapy. It's just too, <laughs> right. it's, I can't do that. But if I know that Nathan's gone to therapy and Sarah's gone to therapy and it's like, oh, okay, well, this is acceptable. People like me go to therapy, Yeah. right? And so if we can use that piece of code for good and say people like us do go to therapy. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, that, I guess that makes it okay. Yeah, that's fine. Like, you can do that. You can do that for yourself. That's a good thing. People like us can have margin in our lives. We don't have to have, you know, every ounce of our energy spent in a day. We can keep some. We can even keep some for ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, we can. Like, that, that, those revelations to me are so powerful. And some of it is because I was in religion so long, and religion keeps so many things under wraps, that I feel like in some ways I'm still a young person discovering these things for the first time. Like, I'm, for the first time, I'm re- recognizing that normal people feel this way. It feels new to me. <laughs> That was the bootstrapper guy, Justin Jackson. He's the guy that has a website my daddy puts all his podcasts on. I wonder if he learned how to surf yet. And this next tie walks hey, in the front of Hey, can I get in on this? It's my podcast. I think I've pretty much got it. And Wait, next... you're going to do it all by yourself? Uh, maybe for a minute. And the next guy works in a hotel. In fact, he's a concierge. It's a pretty fancy name, even though schmancy is a better way to say it. His name is Julian, and he really loves his job. He even tells us why he loves his job. He works in a really cool hotel in Berlin. That's where I live. And also where my daddy lives, Daniel Lussard. He has something he wants to say in the microphone. You don't mind, do you? What? That I say something into the microphone? 
Oh, no, I don't mind. Because I wanted to tell them the story. I don't even know if I told you this story. Did you know that I hadn't seen Julian G., the concierge, since he was my student at the Kennedy School 13 years ago? Whoa. You told me that story, though. Okay, but then, did I tell you this part of the story? I don't think so. We recorded the episode on a Sunday night, okay? And then, three days later, remember Charlotte came over and we went out to go drink beer down the street at the beer bar? Yeah. I ran into Julian G. Really? Yeah, at the beer bar with this guy, Philip, and this other guy whose name I forget. And it was the first time I saw him in 13 years. Whoa! Isn't that a crazy coincidence? Yeah, that is such a crazy coincidence. And you know what else is cool about this episode? What? He shared our conversation with all of his concierge buddies around the world. And like a lot of concierges listened to it. It was kind of exciting. Whoa, that is cool. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Concierge is actually a fancy name. Concierge. 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 Ooh, she, she. Do you know any other fancy words? Fancy. (laughs) I know a fancy word. What? Rendezvous. Rendezvous. But don't go having any rendezvous with a concierge. I don't even know what that means. Let's keep it that way. All right, enough of this. Here's Julian G. You know, perhaps these types of evolutionary processes, those which you describe as organic, are perhaps the most interesting to dive into. And what I want to dive into right here is the most important thing that you said, which you happened to mention rather casually. Can you talk about how and why you fell in love with the role of the concierge? Yeah, I think I remember my first day in the hotel. And this is from someone who had never worked in a restaurant, never carried food, had literally zero experience with it. And it was in the breakfast service. So it was 4.30 in the morning, an ungodly hour to like be up. <laughs> you know, I still have this trauma, this almost like PTSD of the smell of like freshly baked croissants. Like when I walk around Mitte, like if I smell that, I just like instantly get reminded in my apprenticeship time and the internship time as well too. And so I figured, my God, what did I do? Um, I don't know how the hell I'm going to survive this. It wasn't until very late that I actually saw this other side. You know, you're constantly surrounded by what we call F&B, food and beverage. So you're slaying in food, you're taking up orders, and you're running around, and you can't smell eggs anymore. You, that little ding when the, the cook says service, you know, you hear it in your nightmares. Yeah. I was in the lobby, you know, I was, I was wearing the porter uniform, and it was, it was like the most relaxing experience ever because I realized, like, I don't actually like taking orders, and, like, I don't like hearing what people want to eat and then having to go get it for them. <laughs> You know, with the, with the utmost of respect to the people who do that, it's a tough job. Yeah. But I just liked wearing the, the uniform, and I realized that my favorite thing about breakfast or banqueting was talking to the guests and just kind of like, you know, exchanging anecdotes and 
kind of like a witty banter here and there because, you know, even in a luxurious environment, people are pretty chill and there's a lot of really, really cool people that you meet. You know, and while I'm talking to people and I'm standing at the breakfast buffet, you know, my superiors are like, you know, you have like six orders you need to bring out, you know, you should stop talking so much. And being at the concierge, I was able to do that because being a porter, you bring up luggage, um, you're running around a lot as well too. But a lot of the times, you know, you're entertaining the guests. You know, you're the first face that they see when they come into the hotel. They, you know, they drive their car up or they come with a taxi. They see the doorman and they're like, wow, this is, you know, this is the experience. And then you take their luggage and you ask them for their name. You welcome them. You ask them if they have any questions. You know, some people you just, you've, you know, you get a flow right away. You know exactly like, oh, I like this guy. You know, this is going to be a good stay. You know, they're going to be really, really nice. And I just like doing that. And it wasn't until the assistant head concierge kind of like pulled me over and was asked me a few questions about me. You know, I was like, I'm from Berlin, born and raised. You know, I speak English and German fluently. And then he was like, okay, well, this is pretty practical for us. You know, you have to have the language skills to work as a concierge. And he asked me if I wanted to, uh, if I wanted to look over their shoulder and see what they do and maybe make a couple phone calls and so on. And the first few times that I did that, it was terrifying. I mean, it was one of the most terrifying experiences ever. And I'm a very introverted person, um, you know, so the apprenticeship really kicked it out of me. I became a little bit of an extrovert through this when necessary. And so making like phone calls to random people that I don't know and kind of acting like I knew something, which I clearly didn't at the time because I was just an <laughs> apprentice, you know. Yeah, fake it till you make it, right? It was definitely a fake it till you make it situation. And I just remember the first phone call I had to make, I had to recommend and explain a restaurant to a guest on the phone. He was fortunately not in the room. And my boss was like, just leave a message on his answering machine. So I did that and I stuttered and I stumbled and I had no idea what the hell I was selling. I had never been to this restaurant before. It's a two-star Michelin restaurant. It's not something you frequent every single night. And it's certainly not something you know if you don't kind of like move around that kind of society. And then I, I left that weird message and I hung up. And he just looks at me and he just starts laughing because it was so embarrassing. <laughs> he thought it was hilarious. And I was so embarrassed by it that I actually went up to the guest's room, deleted the message from the answering machine and pulled the plug on the phone and reinstalled the phone. Nice play. Yeah. And I raised all tracks. There was no evidence of, of my ruin on there. And that was kind of like my first experience of like, oh, God, I, this was terrifying. And I hoped I can do it again. So we're calling you Julian G. We're not using your last name. And we're not naming the extraordinary hotel at which you work. But we can say to our guests that this hotel is kind of a magical place. It's special. I've stepped foot in it a couple of times. Was never a guest, but I did step inside. And it is truly luxurious. Many of your guests really revel in luxury. You are expected to make an extraordinary guest experience for them. You need to pull strings. You need to get things done. Can you 
talk about how to get what you want to get for your VIP guests? It's really a question of experience and time. The most important thing for a concierge, I think, is this network that we have, this kind of like little black book. And I can ass- I assume that there are plenty of concierges that actually do have a tangible little black book where they have all the phone numbers in there. But as, you know, the a you know, as we progress in, in the age of technology, you know, there's more information, more people. There's only so many books you can carry physically with you. So we do have a kind of like digital version of our little black book. And that's where all the contacts are in. Everybody you can call for any kind of situation. And most of the time, if you start out as a concierge, it's really just, you know, slowly progressing through that and getting to know every single person whenever that situation calls for it. And I remember in the beginning as well, too, you don't know anybody. You start with Google because you don't really know how to navigate all the information that's in the, you know, our personal system. And then, you know, you, you meet one person who can help you with a restaurant reservation. Then you meet the next person who can help you with tickets. And then, you know, and then you have, might have a really bizarre request. And that's when you really have to start making a lot of phone calls. And it just becomes random. You know, you start with one person who you can trust. And he might have some information for you as well, too. He might have the answer directly. You never know. But ultimately, he, every phone call helps in some way. You always meet somebody or you always figure out who else you could call for a situation. And strings to be pulled, I mean, it's really just a question of expanding that network, like almost like the branches of a tree just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, You know, as the years pass on, you almost have a telephone number or an email address for every situation. I also remember when I first started, you know, there are some people who have no idea who you are and you call them and you're like, hey, um, I have two guests, you know, I'm from the hotel, blah, blah, blah. And I have two guests and they want to go to this opera tonight, but the tickets are all sold out in the category that is desired. And, you know, I was wondering if you could help me and they'll just be like, I have no idea who you are. Who else is there at the concierge right now? And you'll just kind of stutter and be like, I'm the only one I'm new here. You know, it's a little bit awkward. Yeah. You know, and then it, now, like three years later, it's just simple. You have a request, you call up the guy you always call, and you're like, you know, you exchange a little bit of small talk, you ask him how the family is, and then, you know, you get things done. And be like, I'll call you in 10 minutes, or I'll call you, you know, in a day or whatever. So it's really just about expanding that network, using that network, treating everybody with respect as well, too, you know, never treating anybody, you know, like shit because you never you know you don't burn bridges as a concierge every bridge stays until you have a million bridges that you can always cross to get somewhere it makes it a lot easier to travel and that's kind of how it works you know we just build bridges and bridges and bridges and bridges you know it's a lot of it's quid pro quo as well too you know like hey like you do me a favor i'll do you a favor sometime we help each other that's all it is making friends meeting new people and hoping that those people can help you out someday Hey, if this is too personal or otherwise inappropriate, please tell me. But I hope you might talk a little bit about how the tipping system works. Like, what are the subtleties of all that? What are the expectations? What do you do when the expectations are unclear? Yeah, tipping is uh, an interesting topic in the world of the hotelerie in general, Um, you know, especially with a concierge. 
I guess, you know, we don't have expectations. You know, ultimately, I don't do the job because, you know, I expect a tip at the end. Tipping is always really appreciated. But I think it also confuses a lot of, like, North American guests as well, too, because... And sometimes they'll, like, bring it up directly, too. Like, I've never broached the topic. I'll never be like, so let's talk about tip. That's not in my vernacular whatsoever. But I do have guests who come up and they'll ask me, like, straight up, which is always weird because I feel like I'm selling myself out and I'm not, you know, being honest. Um, or selling myself short is maybe better because they'll ask, us, so what's this t- tipping situation like? So they'll ask about a restaurant or, like, how much do I tip in a restaurant or do I tip a tour guide? And they're really trying to figure out also like how to tip me. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of like, I'm always very honest. I always tell them that we don't have the same tipping culture that is in the United States. There's no expectation whatsoever because we all get paid, you know, fair wages. We all have health insurance, you know, thank God we don't have to worry about those kinds of things, you know, but in the end, yeah, it depends on like what I did for you. You know, if I made a restaurant reservation and it wasn't, you know, a big deal or whatever, like you don't have to tip me 50 or 100 bucks or whatever. You don't even have to give me anything because it's just kind of like doing my job. If I spend, you know, like a whole weekend trying to arrange everything for you, you know, and I'm constantly being called because a lot of guests, and this is really important, a lot of guests seem to forget that they're not the only people in the hotel. <laughs> you know, they, they treat you as if, you know, like the whole hotel is just them, you know, and they'll be there every morning, you know, and they'll be there and they'll be asking about like their day and what we have planned for them. And they don't realize that, you know, like I have a, a bunch of other things on my to-do list as well, too. And I have, you know, maybe three other guests or I might have 15 or 20, you know, and when you have 20 of those personalities colliding with each other, it gets messy. And sometimes... Even better than, you know, the greatest tip in the world is simply the company of some of our guests. They can be so lovely that I'm like, I don't care if she leaves, you know, and doesn't give me anything. This was one of the nicest interactions that I've ever had, you know, in the hotel. And I've had that with quite a few guests where you get so close to them and you're really like, you're like, you forget that they're even guests or that you're a concierge. You almost feel like you're just helping them like that because you're friends or whatever. So it's really like there's no expectations is it appreciated? Absolutely. You know, we put a lot of heart, blood, sweat, and tears into it. So any kind of gratitude is always, always appreciated. But there is no, there's no kind of like agreed upon rate. Um, it's really just kind of like how you feel. Were you happy with the service? Then by all means. If not, then I definitely won't accept tip. And I've done that. I've given money back because I was like, I was not happy with my service to you. I'm sorry that that went that way. I can't accept this. Mm. And there's no like weird drug deal kind of interactions where you, you know, you get handed like, you know, hundred euro bills and like weird handshakes or anything like that. Um, it just makes for an awkward interaction. So it's mostly fairly straightforward when you do get tip. There's not a lot of subtlety to it. Can I ask you a couple more questions about tipping? Mm-hmm. If you have one of these really mutually enjoyable interactions with a guest and they, they become kind of like friends. You know, maybe they've stayed at the hotel a couple of times. You really connect with them as fellow beings. If they tip you, do you feel like that cheapens the interaction? A little bit. I mean, you know, I, I work really hard and, you know, money is money, ultimately. Um, I'm always happy about any kind of like supplemental income, you know. I hope German tax authorities and the financial authorities don't listen to this podcast and don't start asking me questions about tipping. <laughs> you know, but like, yeah, it feels kind of weird. I've gotten so many 
handwritten letters from guests thanking me, like really like heartfelt letters, you know, that were a page or two long, you know, in a nice envelope. And, you know, and there was money in there. It almost felt like getting like a Christmas card or a birthday card from, from grandma or something like that. And so, yeah, it kind of feels like a little bit like it, not degrading, but it feels a little bit like, oh, man, it brings you back to the reality of this being a professional almost transaction. And I think that can make me a little bit sad sometimes. Mm. But ultimately, the in- interaction stayed. And I really just think about you know the person or the people that I was dealing with. And I think, man, that was great. And then there was also a tip at the end. I mean, that's perfect. I mean, you couldn't you can get any better than that. I remember I had this elderly couple. And they, you know, they had been to Berlin before. And they were there for like six days. And they came down every morning just to ask how I was doing and if I had a good night. And they asked me like what I was doing over the holidays. It was such a beautiful interaction. It was so great to see them every time as well, too. They came down and they had these big smiles. You couldn't be in a bad mood when you saw these people. And that was that was better than anything. And yeah, if they don't give you a tip, it's like whatever. Like I love I love it. That's that's what you really work for in the end, to have that kind of experience with a guest. Chuck could stay at Julian's fancy hotel one day, but my dad said it's way too expensive for him. He said maybe one day we could go explore the rooftop. The next person you're going to hear from is Rachel Dixteen. She's really cool and she speaks German and English just like me. She has this really cool job where she brings together refugees. And I hear refugees are people who are having a really hard time and are trying to come to Germany. And she teams them up with old German people who used to be in prison in the old East Germany. Because East Germany used to be a very hard place to live. And so she brings these people together to share their experiences and to get to know each other. Rachel has a really cool and a really important job, I hope. You enjoy listening to her. Hey, so I'm really interested in the Histories Together project. I read a little bit about it in the Tandem project. Can you dive into those projects and what your work is vis-a-vis those projects? So a Histories Together project is one main component. It's the integration component. We have integration and inclusion for our project at Hohenschönhausen. And Histories Together is the name that we gave our tandem seminars that we conceived and that we conduct. So we do everything end-to-end with that. And the concept of the tandem seminars is uh, our main audience is Usually high school students, the main target group is vocational students. What we're trying to do is transmit the theme of political persecution in the past and present. Not trying to say, oh, look, uh, the history of the GDR is exactly the same as what's going on in Syria. But we want to show parallels to what is it like being in a dictatorship? What is it like being um, being persecuted by a dictatorship? What are the reasons that you could be persecuted? What what would drive you to then flee from your country? And we're we're trying to show that through our TANM seminars. And the best way to learn is 
not only being in a place of history, so being at Hohenschönhausen and showing the cell where the former prisoner was locked up, was kept by the Shazi, but also having the former prisoners telling the stories themselves, combining not only general knowledge of, okay, this is what the GDR was like, hearing that directly from someone who was there um, and hearing what he says uh, about why he tried to flee or maybe he tried to help people flee. What were his motivations for that? Same thing goes with the person who fled from Syria, let's say, or from Afghanistan. Why did they need to flee? What family did they leave behind? Humanizing this for people through these stories. I mean, history is best learned through stories. And I think what what we're really aiming for in our seminars is we're trying to show what the differences are. Because nowadays, a lot of people will complain, it's a dictatorship, this or <laughs> this is fascism, right, or right. this is like in the GDR. And it's like, no, it isn't. Listen, and we'll tell you what a dictatorship is. Oh, the fact that you can go and protest that you're wearing a mask. I mean, look at that. That's freedom of speech. And these are things that seem so self-evident, but a lot of people forget that. So so we're tr- trying to empower these young people, show them they have a voice in their democracy and they can also help change this and not just say, oh, that sucks over there in Syria. And I think what also what we aim for with the seminars is full integration. Integration is a two-way street and a lot of it involves knowing the stories of one another. So newcomers, as we call them, coming here from Syria a lot of them have to do integration courses anyway. So actually, we do have sometimes groups of refugees who then do our, our seminars. So them learning about German history, that's very important to know. Like, what's the history of the country you're living in? Uh, and a lot of them are doing a great job at learning German. But then also it has to come from the other end. Like, we have to know what cultures are coming here. This is something that's, for me, self-evident as an American coming from this this multi culty like a melting pot of San Diego where we had people from from China India Mexico you welcome those different cultures and you have to learn about them and learn about their religions as well this doesn't mean oh give up what my culture is and I think that needs to become apparent and that's what we're trying to show and trying to break down these barriers with these seminars we also give a safe space for people to just like just fire off their questions. In, in, without feeling, oh, I'm maybe offending this uh, refugee. I'm offending the Syrian guy standing in front of me telling his story because that's why he's here. He's he's here to answer your questions. Same thing with the guy from the GDR. You can ask whatever you want. When do we have that opportunity in everyday life? When do we have that opportunity in school? Unless a guest speaker is brought in. I mean, I can imagine there would be a lot, a lot fewer stereotypes um, about Jews or misconceptions about Jews, if, you know, more people would have that safe space with someone like me to just ask whatever they want. This is also people's chance to ask about Islam and also see, hey, like Islam is very varied and they can maybe ask if they want, like, hey, um, like how does your religion play into this? It's not just those people we see in media who um, are part of ISIS. Actually, a lot of the people who are refugees here, they were fleeing from ISIS they're being persecuted by Islamists, but they themselves are Muslim because, of course, Islam is a big term. And we're just seeing that it's very multifaceted. We want to get people away from this black and white thinking. We want to get them away from misconceptions, from racist misconceptions. 
and Islamophobic misconceptions from the media. What I'm most curious about here is how you, in doing your day-to-day work, help to achieve that lofty and, frankly, beautiful objective. Maybe we should start as it starts. What happens in the morning when you get into the office slash prison and get to work? So... The best way to break it down was there were three components to this, to achieving our goals of breaking down racism, distributing knowledge, getting people more aware of democracy. We had to first have a conception phase. And this was the first uh, couple of months of our project. So the conceptual part was um, I had intensive brainstorming sessions with my colleague, with Yanina. It was like think tank style. We would meet in cafes and in our office. like. How do we best structure the tandem seminars? We were spending a lot of time uh, re- trying to become like, in a way, experts. But of course, we knew we weren't experts. Like, So researching a lot on the history of Syria, history of Islam, uh, the inner workings of Islam, um, looking at the demographics of the countries we're working with. But then what we did is we didn't want to talk about the refugees without their input. So we had actually these think tank sessions with Syrian refugees to hear their advice and knowledge on what to present in the TANM seminars to see what parts of their history are important to mention, what is important for you to mention in your story. We had to then find like a skeletal structure of our seminars. We all had to agree on a common goal. So like showing parallels between dictatorships then and now, consequences of those, why asylum is necessary, and providing time for people to ask questions to refugees in a safe space. And so what we had to do is we had to uh, think, okay, how are we going to pack all this in? And after these intensive brainstorming sessions and getting input also from other pedagogues, like from our pedagogical uh, work um, department in the memorial, we finally figured out how we would structure a three or five hour seminar with two stories packed into it as well as the tour and the historical context without confusing or overwhelming these students. Can you give me a sense of what the product of all of this concerted thinking and reaching out to your stakeholders and your colleagues, what does this three to five hour experience look like? Can you give a sense of what that experience is for, say, a high school student coming in? And basically, it's five hours of alternating between interactive exercises and listening to the eyewitnesses. We call them eyewitnesses in German, like Zeitzeugen. And how we structured it is, of course, you have to warm people up. A lot of times, these are people who are coming in at like 9 or 10 a.m. You know, they're like, oh, okay, maybe half asleep. You have to then activate them. And start getting them to think about like, well, what are what am I doing here? Maybe the teacher told them about it. We want to make sure we're all on the same page that we're talking about political persecution. So we do an interactive activity with, uh, for instance, pa- uh, pairing up uh, photos, like photos from the GDR, like from the Cold War, and then from now, like showing images of refugees, showing um, 
uh, asylum status photos, refugee center. And then they start getting from there a feel for what uh, this is about. We try not to play too much of a frontal role. We try not to give things away. We try to have them come to their own conclusions. And then we give them the overview that we first talk about the GDR history and do a timeline activity with them, interactive, to also see what their previous knowledge is. And then the former prisoner talks about his, I say his because most of our um, former prisoners right now are male, but of course we also have some women. They tell their personal stories and they walk the group through the memorial, through the former prison, showing the former interrogation center and what was going on there and talking about the methods of the Stasi. And then there's a break, like a lunch break. And after that, we have the reflection phase. So time to ask questions about the GER before moving on to the history of Syria or Afghanistan or Somalia. And then uh, we do the same thing, a similar thing with an interactive uh, timeline with Syria to try to gather what previous knowledge they have. And then we actually have the Syrian refugee explain the timeline himself because we think, okay, he can do it better than we can, even though we've researched. And once that part is done, he then goes and tells his story about why he needed to flee and also what it had been like for him in Germany, what his arrival was like, if he was welcomed uh, or uh, we leave a lot of time for questions. And then the student, a lot of time people ask like, okay, how long did it take for you to learn German? Um, How welcome, how welcome do you feel here? Do you ever want to go back to Syria? Um, And then they start realizing a lot of times through that, oh, you would want to go back to Syria, but it's too dangerous. Okay. Gotcha. Like it's not just this. And then it starts becoming apparent to them. Like, Hey, it's not just this decision. Like, Hey, I just felt like coming to Germany. Right. Right. It's like, yeah, I had to leave everything and start my life anew. And then after that, they have time for questions for both of the eyewitnesses. And then at the end, we also ask, we not only pass around a, an anonymous feedback form, but we also ask, so what are you taking with you today? And a lot of times they come to the conclusions that we would have wanted or maybe even extra ones that we weren't even intending for. So a lot of times they're like, hey, yeah, there's, there's still dictatorships today and we take our democracy for granted. They're really making connections faster than I've seen a lot of adults make connections. And I feel then that just this great accomplishment and they're, they're like, wow, it was so special hearing someone's story and why he had to come here and why we need asylum. And you especially get that with Afghanistan. So it's not our goal to say, hey, this country needs asylum. But I, myself, as Rachel, I'm saying, yes, like we can see that it's a very dangerous country and people should not be getting sent back there. Just listen to the story. And I see this light in people's eyes. And then I think, OK, they got it. Yeah. I'd imagine that there are innumerable times where you see the light bulb go off, particularly with the young people who you rightfully seem to prize teaching. I have one last question about this project that you're managing and developing. It's really challenging work. And I also think it's really beautiful what you're striving to do. Can you tell the story of a really challenging moment where two cultures interfaced 
and to experience its interface. And it was just like really challenging for you. And then can you tell just a beautiful story of cultures connecting despite adverse circumstances? Hmm. I have to say we have been super fortunate to have really respectful participants in our seminars. We've never had an issue. I We haven't had an issue with the tandem teams. They get along so well, the former prisoners and the, and the refugees, and have so much empathy for one another. That, that's, been, that's been great. I mean, the only trouble that we had, but we were able to sort it out was um, that we recently had a seminar where there were actually a couple of uh, Syrian refugees in the group. It was actually an online seminar and we hadn't been debriefed that they were there. We're always very careful at not re-traumatizing people or like not bringing back bad memories. And I think also as this was a situation where because it was a, a vocational school where they're also half of the time in the, like at work and half of the time in the class, the, I don't think the teachers really knew where, um, where people were from and the fellow students, not necessarily because it all started in Corona time. So everything was online, was digital. And basically when they told the story, then all of a sudden they started telling their own stories and we could notice that they, they weren't doing very well, like um, emotionally. And we had to have a talk with the, once the online tenem seminar was over, we had to take some extra time talking to them and hearing their stories. But I actually wasn't so concerned because I said, you know, there's some people, they just don't mention it. And I think these are people who they usually, they said themselves, they don't usually talk about their, that they're refugees or the people know, okay, they're refugees, but they don't talk about all the trauma they've experienced, seeing people killed by ISIS, by the Assad regime. But they, I could tell in that moment, they had the need to tell it. And actually one of the young men in the group, when we were talking to him alone away from the other students, he was showing us photos back from when he was a, a refugee and showing the boat. And he really had the need in that moment to show us. And so we listened attentively. And I think, and I think that helped. Uh, it helped him to get it off his chest. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds terribly challenging. But I want to hear the other side too. I would like you to share a story of something beautiful that happened in one of these cultural exchanges. Every time that we watched a tandem team, like the tandem pair meet each other, that was really touching to see how they were listening to one another with empathy, like the former prisoners and the refugees. And um, also being able to see them get moved to tears by the other person's uh, story I think that was really that was really touching, and also hearing then the former prisoners talk about, "Hey, I don't really understand why someone would have something against you." The last person you're going to hear from today is Zach Miller. Zach is an ultra runner. That means that he sometimes likes to run 100 kilometers at a time. He talks to my daddy about why he likes to do that. 
And he talks to my daddy about how it is to have all that pain in his body from running through the mountains like a crazy person. He really likes to win all the time, but he's a really nice guy. Here's Zach Miller. The sheer intensity of that strikes me as equal parts repellent and attractive. Now, I think most people who think about distance running, they envision groups of people pounding the pavement. But you run in the dark, in the snow, in the ice, the mud and the muck. I'm curious about the work of sustaining your mental acuity in these long runs on sometimes very difficult terrain. When you're running on the road, there is a certain zone that you can fall into and you just keep going and going and going. But I think if we're all honest, there's also a certain amount of boredom (laughs) that sets in. Oh, for sure. But ultra running is often like in the mountains. And I mean, it is also on the road, but most of what I do is in the mountains or on the trails or in the forest. And that tends to be very entertaining. I mean, why do people enjoy hiking? They go out and hike for hours and hours and hours. And well, they're seeing lots of really cool stuff. And in ultra running, it's the same. We run these races and we, you know, and we go over mountain passes and we see lakes and we see rivers and we see, you know, animals out in the forest that keeps you mentally engaged. Hmm. But then you also have to kind of focus on like actually what you're doing (laughs) and trying to go fast and trying to be efficient and trying to take care of your body. It definitely does take a lot of, I guess, mental fortitude. You just have to have this kind of like drive in you that really keeps you mentally engaged so that you just keep pressing. But then when you're out there training and things, and even when you're racing, you also really have to enjoy it. And so when you enjoy it, then I think your mind handles it better. But it always does get to that point, usually where it's also really hard. So so then maybe it's kind of hard to describe how you keep your mind where it needs to be. I don't know. You just kind of find a way to do it. And I think you train your body and you train your mind at the same time. So when it gets to the hard parts in the race, you're kind of like, Oh, well, I've felt this in training and your mind just kind of like knows what to do to some extent. Can you give me a sense of whether the effort is to focus your mind on the task at hand versus letting your mind just sort of go so that you can get into a flow so that you can be in a zone? For me, it's not necessarily one or the other. It can be either of those two things. When I, when I first started into the sport, I remember one of the early races that I ran was a a race called the Lake Sonoma 50, a 50 mile race out in California. It was in a place I had never been. It was a a trail I had never run. And so to me that day, the race was just kind of like a big adventure. And I just 
wanted to go out and enjoy it and explore. And I think that helped me mentally that day. You're competing, but you're also just kind of like, you're distracting yourself from the pain of what you're doing by just enjoying what's around you and just kind of, I guess, getting into the zone that way, where you're just kind of like, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. I feel like the rhythm and flow of my pace and my stride. And you just kind of sink into that. What does it feel like when you're thoroughly dialed in? It actually feels really good. Basically, every little thing that you have that goes right is like a little morale booster during the race. And that might just be like, okay, I ran that last downhill really, really smoothly. Like I didn't stumble at all. It just all felt natural and flowed. It could also be something as simple like I took my nutrition on time. So we'll eat different things throughout the race. Um, I eat a lot of goo energy gels um, and drink a lot of energy drinks. It's just, it's kind of like, kind of like Gatorade, but like way better than Gatorade. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I know this stuff. I'll have those at specific intervals throughout the race, but every race is kind of different. So some races I have more dialed in than others. So like that race in California, I did that so many years that I just basically knew what the nutrition strategy was. And so like, what I'm saying is that even something as simple as like, I finished my bottle in the amount of time I was supposed to, and I had my gels all like right on schedule that all like boosts my morale. I'm just like, okay, this race is going well. Like I'm on schedule, like everything's, you know, working, it's all clicking off and just everything is smooth. Um, you just kind of get all those little success balls rolling and they just keep snowballing into hopefully a really good performance. I'm desperately afraid I'm going to bore you by asking the following question because I'm kind of afraid that I'm asking the same question a couple of different ways. But I'm so curious that I'm going to try and I hope you'll forgive me for doing so. I guess I'm curious as to the relationship between what we might call mindfulness and mindlessness as it pertains to your work. Can you talk a little bit about how and why you pursue mindfulness? It's like hyper acute awareness and how and why and when you pursue mindlessness, just getting the job done. Yeah, that's, that's a, that's an interesting question. And that's, that's probably a very valuable question. So I'm trying to wrap my head around this. So yeah, so mindfulness and mindlessness, <laughs> deciding when to use which one. I think it's not really an either or scenario for me. It's more both. I think ideally I use both of those things at the same time, but in different ways, if that makes sense. So while I'm doing a long race, uh, say, say a race, like a hundred mile race, it's really long. (laughs) So if you think about it too much, it just seems overwhelming. And I think because of that, if you're on mile one, thinking ahead to mile 99 and how much farther you have to go, it's, it's going to be pretty defeating. 
So I think because of that aspect, I try to employ mindlessness where it's just like, I'm not running a hundred miles. I'm just running through these mountains, you know, and eventually I'm going to get all the way around this mountain and there will be a finish line, but I'm not going to think too much about the miles I have to go. I'm just going to kind of turn off my brain and run whatever mile I'm in. So you more or less try to do that throughout the whole race so that mentally you don't get overwhelmed. But while you're doing that, you still have to be mindful (laughs) of where you are in the race, if that makes sense. So they kind of have to coexist because if you're not mindful of where you're at in the race and what you're doing, you're likely to mess something up, which may not have a very big impact initially, but could have a really big impact later on. So, so say I run the first 20 miles mindlessly and I don't remember to take any of my nutrition. I'll probably actually feel all right for a while, but when I get to mile 50, I'm probably going to start paying the price for not eating or drinking anything in that first 20 miles. So even though I may have done a really good job of being mindless, I paid the price later on because I wasn't mindful in taking care of myself. So that is how I would describe it. You have to be mindful about what you're doing, but when it comes to the big picture of what's left to be done, that's where you kind of have to shut your brain off, if that makes any sort of sense. (laughs) No, it makes perfect sense. And indeed, your response illustrates sort of a problem with the premise of the question. You see, in my mind's eye, one would need to toggle back and forth between mindfulness and mindlessness. But what you're illustrating is perhaps the complexity of having to be both mindful and mindless rather simultaneously. You have to be mindful of certain matters and mindless about other matters. And just knowing how to navigate that is perhaps what separates great ultra runners from elite ultra runners. I'm curious about the degree to which you are thinking about these types of things at all when you're running? Like, am I being mindful? Am I, is my mental acuity there? Or are you not really having to think about that so much in your work as a runner? I do like the aspect of disconnecting. In fact, early on in the sport, I, I was known for not even wearing a watch when I would race. But then I had an instance where I messed up my nutrition <laughs> because usually time is, is, is how we, we kind of strategize nutrition. You know, you take so many calories per hour roughly. And so if you're going to do that, it helps to know <laughs> what the time is. <laughs> so then I did start wearing a very basic watch, 
but like, that's probably one of the major things I'm thinking about when I'm racing is, okay, how much time has passed? Um, not because of my pace, but because of when do I need to eat this next thing that's sitting in my pocket? So there's those things going on in your head. Mainly runners are just like, we're very in tune with our bodies. So we're always doing these little like checks of like, okay, how's everything feeling? You know, <laughs> like, you know, I don't know, like, how are the feet? How are the knees? Like, how is the breathing? Is anything sort like, you're just kind of like, okay, check, check, check. Like, okay, everything's good. Or this isn't good. How do I fix that? You know? So there's kind of like all these little micro calculations that are constantly going on. And then some runners get really caught up in the pace, you know, you know, where they're at exactly in the race. And I try not to get too caught up in that. But yeah, so there's, there's just kind of like a lot of micro calculations that are going on while you're out there and you're, you study the guys around you too. You, you know, you try to get a feel for like, okay, who's laboring, you know, and who seems really smooth, like they're not even trying. And am I stronger on the climbs or is he stronger on the climbs? And is he better on the descents or am I better on the descents? And, and you're just paying attention to all this stuff. And, and I guess it sounds like a lot, it sounds really stressful, but it's, it, it's really not really that bad. It's, it's really pretty fun, <laughs> I believe. You, but, but there's kind of a lot that's going on and you can make as much or as little out of it as you want. And I think that's kind of like the trick is finding your mental game and what works for you, because some guys will just totally psych themselves out while they're out there. Now, I don't know how it's going to make you feel when I say this, but you're one of the best ultra runners in the world. And, well, first, uh, congratulations, because that's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, but I wonder about the degree to which and the ways in which you are motivated by the desire to win and to beat the next guy? I, I think it's a huge factor for me. I'm a very competitive person. I've been competitive probably pretty much all my life. Like I, I probably like came out of the womb competitive. <laughs> um, and I like racing. I, like, I largely like competing with myself, making myself better. And then of course that, that ends up taking me into the world of competing against other people. Um, and I enjoy that too. If, if I'm in a race, I get re really competitive. Like when I first started kind of down this professional path, I, I remember like I would go to races and I just like, I just wanted to be at the top. Like you get on the line and it's like, I have to win this, <laughs> which sounds kind of bad. Like I was already competitive, but then when I started winning stuff that felt so good, <laughs> like it recalibrates. You. Yes. And, and once you have the taste of that, you just want it again. And again, like it's, it's kind of addictive. It's just like the best feeling in the world, but that now it's like, 
okay, now what do I win next? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it can be very dangerous. It can also be, I think, kind of good because it keeps you charging ahead, but you do have to like be mindful of what it does to you because it is like very addictive. And it was just like, I would get on start lines and like, I just wanted to win. Like success was to win. Yeah, I pretty much am an all or nothing racer. Like yeah. it's kind of like Talladega Knights, you know, he's like, you ain't first or last, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, it, that was, that can very easily become the motto. It's like, well, I want to win. And if I don't win, well, like people be like, Oh, but you got second. Like, that's really, I'm like, I, but second means nothing to me. <laughs> like I just wanted to win. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it can be unhealthy, but you can also be like that and then still kind of learn to be like, okay, I didn't win and life goes on. And now I'm just going to like go back to the drawing board and try and win the next time. Like you can still kind of do it in a healthy way. I don't know. I feel like some people are out there like, Oh, I'm trying to have a good day and we'll see where I place. And where I'm out there, like running at the front hog wild, because I'm like, I got to stay with these guys because I got to beat these guys because this is my only like uh, measure of success. <laughs> and, I, and I'll like hang on to packs that like at paces that sometimes feel stupid. Like I'll be like, I don't know if any of us can keep this up. Right but I want to race for the win and these are the guys at the front. So I'll just like hang in there and go for it anyways. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but yeah, the, the competitive spirit in me is, is really strong. <laughs> uh, first of all, I have to say that I'm thrilled that Ricky Bobby of Talladega Nights got quoted <laughs> on this Dud's podcast. This is a, a source of tremendous joy for me. Thank you so much for referencing that film. I never thought it would have happened. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, oh, well, it's very applicable. It's just like maybe more applicable than some people might, might realize. <laughs> oh, you nailed it. Those are some of my daddy's favorite parts from the first half of season five from Studs. Actually, he's not really sure if it his favorite parts. He was sitting in front of the computer forever to try and find his favorite parts. I think he just gave up and went with these. We are going to do another episode of my daddy's favorite parts next week. And my daddy says I can introduce all the clips again next week. I hope you like this highlights episode. In case you didn't hear that, I was just blowing you a kiss. See you next week.